Our scripture this morning comes from Deuteronomy 34, verses 1 to 12. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zor. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite of Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of God. Thanks, Megan, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. We'll take a moment and pray together, and then we'll look at this word uh, that we've just heard read so that we can complete our series looking at the life of Moses, which we've been considering together this summer. Let's pray. Thanks so much, Father, for the privilege of gathering within these walls to listen for your voice at this uh, new season, this new day. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, Father. We pray particularly on this day that you would make us mindful of the things which make for peace. That we, Father, would be receptive to all that you would reveal that might shape us, Father, in order that in our broken world we might be uh, people of healing, people of hope, people of mercy, people of joy, people of peace. Lead us there, we pray, in the name of Christ who is our hope. Amen. Well, good to be home after a couple of weeks of travel, speaking in other locations. Also, uh, interesting to be beginning a new season here at Bethany, because this is actually my 21st year here at Bethany, and that's a long, that's a long time. It's a long time. And so I was thinking about, uh, as I was flying home from California, uh, Earlier this week, on Thursday, I was thinking about what are some of the you know, highlights of my time here? What are some of the great memories? And though there are many, uh, there have been quite a few funerals that have been powerful for me. Uh, the man who designed this space, his name Bob Hull, he's an architect of world renown, and uh, he died suddenly uh, in his 60s. And his wife contacted me, and we were privileged to perform a memorial service funeral here within these walls and hear stories of his work. My predecessor here at Bethany Community Church, John McCullough, after he passed away, 
uh, there was a service here in these walls. And people shared stories of his faithfulness, his humor, his pastoral heart, his love for people, his love for Christ. And I can share actually many more, but just as a rubric, I want to say to you why I like funerals. I like weddings, but I like funerals more, actually. Weddings are great, but the, the thing I, I guess I enjoy about funerals, if I can say it that way, is they remind me of the truth that every one of us is responsible for writing our own funeral. In other words, we write our own story, don't we? And it's the decisions we make today that will be recounted someday in our absence when people gather to remember us. Stephen Covey, in his uh, management book, entitled Seven Habits for Highly Effective People, uh, habit one, he says, uh, is begin with the end in mind. And there's a little exercise at the beginning of this where he says, okay, I want you to sit down and close your eyes. And now you can't really read while you're closing your eyes. So you read this thing and then you close your eyes. But you're supposed to kind of envision your funeral. You've died. Your family members show up. Uh, neighbors, friends, people from your church perhaps, co-workers. And then he asks the question, what would people say about you? And I mean, I've done funerals, so I know. And I've done good funerals and bad funerals, so I know, right? And I've heard everything uh, from he was there for me uh, when my child died and when my wife had cancer to he never had time for me. I've heard everything. <laughs> what will people say at your funeral? It's a good question, actually. Well, uh, we know what people said of Moses from this chapter. And so Moses' end of the story reminds us that it's wise for us to live today with our own end of the story in mind. What will your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members say about you when you're gone? What will they say? And Moses' story here reveals uh, three declarations about his death that, that show us what people thought of Moses. And these three declarations are declarations that we hope would be true of us. Uh, some of them are abs will absolutely be true and some we hope are true. Here's what we learn regarding the life of Moses uh, from which we can draw strength and hope and teaching instruction. The first declaration, Moses died without arriving. The second declaration, Moses died strong and remembered. The third declaration, Moses died pointing everyone to Christ. He died without arriving. He, he died strong and remembered. He died pointing everyone to Christ. Will that be your story? Well, the first one will be your story. You'll die without arriving. We know that. As we begin there, and I want to articulate this for you, beginning to read in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 4. Re follow with me as I read. Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. So Deuteronomy chapter 34. This one says, Moses went up from the plains of Moab, so he's kind of in the lower flat country, up on Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, Naphtali, Ephraim. Uh, and then verse four, significant. The Lord said to Moses, this is the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, saying, I'll give you this land. And then God says to Moses, I've let you see it with your eyes, but you will not go there. You won't, you can't go, you can't enter the land. You want to, but you won't. Now, so this is the thing. Moses didn't arrive. He died before realizing everything that he wanted to realize. And, and there are actually two reasons for this. And the first one is this. God is showing us here, and it's significant, 
In this little video, God is showing us nobody achieves perfection. In other words, we're just going to name this. This isn't something unique to Moses. This is the truth. Nobody arrives. And here's how I know this. If I take you to Hebrews chapter 11, this is what we read. We read an articulation in Hebrews 11 of those who lived faithful lives. Abel, uh, early in Genesis. Noah, who built the ark. Some of you know Abraham, who left home and went out not knowing where he was going. Joseph, who suffered uh, uh, betrayal and slavery and uh, false accusations and, and imprisonment. And now Moses, all of these are spoken of in Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews 11, these people are held up as exemplary of their faith, right? They had heroic faith, courageous. They were risk takers. They followed God. But one of the most critical verses in the Bible is found in Hebrews 11:39, where at the end of this articulation, this is what we read, all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. And I underline that in my Bible. They did not receive what was promised. What does that mean? Well, there's a couple of things that are significant here, but the first, here's, the, here's what frames that phrase, that mysterious phrase. They didn't receive what was promised. Here's the thing we see. All of them died without seeing all of their longings fulfilled. One of the longings that all of them had was to see the, full, the, the, the fulfillment of God's full plan, and none of them saw it. Because when you, you go on in Hebrews 11, you read Hebrews 11, chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 40, this is what you see. You see in, in, in that verse that they were waiting for something better, but the something better for which they were waiting was given to us. That's a very interesting verse. So, so we're given insight here into this profound mystery that God hid some things from previous generations, but revealed them later to other generations. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, articulates this with crystal clarity, and it's important, as we'll see in just a moment. So be patient as I read this for you. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this. Peter's talking about, hey, I know you're suffering, but don't worry about it because the suffering is perfecting you and it's resulting in the salvation of your souls. And then in verse 10, this is what he says. Regarding this salvation, now listen to this, regarding salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come later, the prophets of the Old Testament, they made careful search and inquiry. They wanted to know the person and the time that the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when Christ was indicating through them this prediction of the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. In other words, Isaiah, Elijah, Moses, right? Noah, Abraham, David, all of them wanted to know more than they knew. They wanted to understand Christ, and it, it was revealed to them, verse 12, that they were not serving themselves, but they were writing things that they didn't understand, so that you, by the Holy Spirit, would be enabled to see them later. In other words, they were writing things that would only be understood through the rearview mirror. After Christ came, and suffered, and died, and rose again, suddenly Paul goes, oh, now I get it. It's the suffering servant, Isaiah chapter 50. Who knew? Oh, and by the way, he was born in Bethlehem. Isn't that amazing? Micah said he'd be born in Bethlehem. Prophecy was used by Paul to bring clarity to revelation that wasn't understood. In other words, you only understand prophecy actually through the rearview mirror. <laughs> don't, use pro don't use prophecy to like, try to figure out who the Antichrist is. You won't know until after. My father-in-law is a contractor, 
and he's passed away. But wisest words he ever said to me, once I went into ministry, he goes, here's the thing I learned a long time ago, Richard, never trust a preacher with a chart. Don't you love that? <laughs> Do you understand what he means by that? Like, oh yeah, the guy who's going to tell you, this is when the world's going to end him because Gorbachev has a spot on his head. He must be the Antichrist. And if it isn't Gorbachev, then it's going to be Saddam. And if it isn't Saddam, it's going to be uh, Assad. And, you know, we all know. And here's the thing we don't know. <laughs> Not till after. But what do we know? We know Christ. Because Christ has come, lived, died, risen, ascended, intercedes, and now lives within us. And we know that because of the prophets, but the prophets who spoke it didn't know it. And so this stuff was written, and Moses' life was articulated, not only for his own benefit and the benefit of his generation, but significantly for our benefit, because he was portraying things that he didn't understand. And so now, that's the observation, and there's two kind of so what questions that are very important that stem from this. Question number one, okay, what does it matter that Moses died without understanding everything there is to know about Jesus? Who cares? That's an interesting fact. But who cares? We're going to answer that. Question number two. What does it matter that Moses didn't enter the land? So he didn't enter the land. Thank you for that. I've got a game to watch. Can we please leave? No, no, no. You can't leave. There's, these are important questions. So now watch this. Question number one. What does it matter that Moses died without understanding everything? Well, here's the thing. We see from this reality woven throughout the whole Bible, and this is a very important principle for everyone about to start a Bible study in the fall. This is what we see. The revelation from God has been expanding and evolving. The revelation from God throughout the scripture is expanding and evolving. And because this is true, all of us in the room need to be very careful how we read the Bible. In other words, because the revelation is expanding, you can't cherry pick verses from the Old Testament to endorse your particular little political view. Uh, whether it's slavery, violence, vengeance, subjugation of women, no selective reading from Leviticus about homosexuality should determine your ethic about homosexuality. Don't cherry pick these verses, why? Because, because revelation is expanding. And this is what we discover when we read the Bible, the fullest revelation, if you want to know God's ethic, God's plan, God's will, all that is revealed in its greatest clarity and fullness in the person of Christ, Hebrews chapter 1. So in Hebrews 1, this is what it says, in the past, God spoke through prophets in many ways, right? Signs, visions, dreams, and, the, and people spoke, and they spoke what they knew, and they spoke what they heard, but they, it wasn't clear, it wasn't full. That's that first Peter passage. They didn't even understand fully what they were saying. But though it was unclear then, it's clear now because the clearest and fullest, and by the way, final revelation, we're told in Hebrews 1, is found in the person of Christ. Christ is our ethic. Christ is our source. Christ is our center. So the fullest revelation seen in Christ, and even this, we don't know perfectly, but we know well. Because it says in 1 Corinthians 13 that even still we're looking through a glass darkly, so it's hard. So this should lead for us to a fixation on the person and work of Christ because he who has seen me says Jesus has seen the Father. You want to know God? You want to know God's heart? Look at Christ. The word became flesh, John 1.14, dwelt among us and we beheld its gl the, the glory of the word in the person of Christ. And then this is what it says. That glory is from the only begotten, the Father. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. I just returned from California. I was visiting with a friend down there and uh, she went to, we went to high school together 
she had a dental practice, now she's retired. And so I, I said, what are you doing with your free time now that you're retired? You know, what are you doing? And she says, I'm teaching myself Aramaic. Really? Like, who does that? You could golf, you could do, you could hike. Oh, no, Aramaic. Why? And this is what she says. Because um, <laughs> I've become obsessed with Jesus. And so I want to, like, I want to not just, I want to know what Jesus said in the language in which he spoke it. Not in Greek. Like, I went to seminary, we learned Greek, we learned Hebrew, we didn't learn Aramaic. And the point isn't to go out and study Aramaic necessarily, but the point is this, to say, look, our calling is to be fixated on Christ because Christ is the fullest revelation. So your ethic comes from Christ, not a verse that you cherry-pick from somewhere. And here's, here's the, the second question. Let me, again, we're under this umbrella now. He died without arriving. Second question. Well, what does it matter that Moses didn't enter the land? Or that Joseph and Abraham and everyone else in the Bible died without receiving the fullness of what was promised? What does it matter? Well, this matters because it shows, it's very freeing actually in a bittersweet sort of way. It shows us this. No single individual carries the torch of God's whole work. Does that make sense? Like this carries on, for, it was there before us, we have it, we'll, we'll pass the torch hopefully to somebody else, it's a little bit like a relay, I got the baton, I have it now, but I want to make sure to pass it on fully, but it, my response, I'm not Jesus, and you're not Jesus, none of us are responsible for everything, each of us then are responsible to find our part in God's story and play it, and over and over and over again in the Bible, you find people dying with something yet unfulfilled, a longing in their heart. It's a little bit bittersweet at a level, right? Like Moses could lead the people out of slavery, but not into the land. That's for Joshua. Well, then Joshua leads them into the land, but they don't fully conquer the land. That's for David. And then David could lead them fully into the land, but he couldn't build a temple because there's blood on his hands from conquering all his enemies. That's for Solomon. And then Solomon could build a temple, but he could not know and enjoy domestic tranquility because he had 300 wives. <laughs> and that's his problem. So nobody dies fully happy. Even the guy with 300 wives. Or, or especially the guy with 300 wives, <laughs> depending on how you look at it, right? But everybody had a part to play. That's the thing to see. And, and the even better news here in this, it's kind of bittersweet. We don't get to realize all of her dreams. There is no kind of place where all your dreams come true. However, when you play your part, you can relax and play your part. And know that in playing your part, you're sowing seed. And when you, look, this is Ecclesiastes, my favorite Old Testament book. When you sow, you know God will use it somehow. You don't have to see it. You just know. I just came back from Mount Hermon, where it's privileged to speak. It's a conference center down in California. And uh, the reason I love this place is when I was a child, this was my little Eden. It was my safe place. Like I grew up in Fresno, and in the summers in Fresno, if you've never been there, in the, in the, like I get it if you haven't been there in the summer, but if you haven't, it's because it's 105, 110. We didn't have a pool. And so we would like, what do you do all summer? Well, we sweat. That's it. <laughs> There's nothing else to do, right? And then... And then uh, but then, like one week every summer, we'd drive across the coastal range, and as you drop down towards the, the Pacific Ocean, it just gets cooler and cooler and cooler, and then pretty soon we're in this lush redwood forest, and those of you down there in the Bay Area, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, and you, like so we'd, I, we just flew down, and I opened the door, and I 
like as soon as I smell the redwoods, memory, like smell is a memory trigger and immediately I feel like I'm six years old. And, I, and I, first thing I did, we unload the car, my wife t- takes a nap and I say, I'm going to my grandma's house. Every time, that's what I do. So I walk down to her house and I can see myself. There I am, I'm six. And with my grandmother, she's running out. I mean, we don't know, nobody, it's not in our family anymore, the house. But I can see, my grandmother runs out. She's always, she had a big bowl of cinnamon rolls, fresh hot. And she'd, she'd hand me cinnamon rolls, she'd pick me up. Oh, we're so glad you're here. It's gonna be so fun this week. I love that place. Laughter, card games, cinnamon rolls. And then one night when I was 12 years old, I said, I'm going to go up to the conference center. It's a quarter of a mile. I'm going to go buy some beef jerky. So I went up, and as I'm getting up there, I hear the speaker, because it's an open-aired kind of meeting hall. I hear the speaker, and there's people sitting outside, and I go sit outside, and this guy has a British accent. And so I thought, I've never heard this. I'm going to listen to him. I listen, and uh, I liked what he said so much, I bought his book. And, and because I bought his book, I read the cover. Oh, he's from a place called Cape Ray Hall. 20 years later, I called Cape Ray Hall to talk to him. That's how I became associated with Torchbearer Ministry, where I teach all over the world. From buying a book because I was hungry for beef jerky, because I was in Mount Hermon, because my grandmother practiced hospitality and made great cinnamon rolls. <laughs> and my dad cared enough to take us there. So, like, every person had a part to play. And then fast forward the tape even more. 1993, and I'm in England speaking at Cape Ray Hall, where John Hunter was a teacher for years and years and years. And he's, at that time then, he's in his 90s. And then um, uh, he comes up and introduces himself to me. He says, I'm very, I'm, my name is Dr. John Hunter, and dignified, I'm very much looking forward to hearing you speak. And I said, you have no idea, you have no idea. Do you remember 1968, do you remember that? <laughs> You're speaking, Mount Hermon, Tuesday night, kid walks in, that was me. I bought your book. That's why I'm speaking today. Because you were faithful then. God used it, and now I'm able to speak, and someday I'll no longer breathe, but my prayer is that I will have spoken somewhere along the way, and someone would have listened, and that the seed that he sowed that took root in my heart now I might sow seed that might take root in other hearts and this is the beauty and glory of the gospel, right? Hopefully every one of us play our part because everyone sitting in the room has a part to play. Everyone, we're not, we're, none of us are soloists, we're a symphony, man. And as we play our part faithfully, God uses it to create light shining in our city and our world. We all have a role to play. None of us have to play the whole symphony. <laughs> but we each of us have to play the part. So, so. Sow your seed. I shared this story. This gal came up to me uh, at Mount Hermon. She said, hey, two, two years ago, you, you, you know, you spoke. And um, so I was so moved by this one story you shared about exit 53. I said, I don't remember. What are you talking about? And she, she told me my sermon illustration. Oh, don't you remember that time? And then I remembered, you know, we live up in the mountains at exit 53 on I-90 and my wife calls me one day and says, hey, uh, I've got something special planned uh, for when you get home. And you know where, what I thought, right? So <laughs> I'm like, so I'm heading home. And then um, I'm hungry, really hungry. So at exit 31, 
I'd, I'd get off because McDonald's is there. And I'm just going to get a little snack to tide me over to get home. Well, you go in, and then there's 10 McNuggets for $4, but 20 for 5 And I'm like this. This is a stewardship issue, man. I, you know, I, I get 20 for 5 I get 20 McNuggets, and I eat the entire box on the way home. So I'm sick and, and you know, gorged. But then I walk in the door, and she's got this beautiful meal fixed. And I, and I shared that at Mount Hermon two years ago, and I said, if only I'd waited. And then she said, My, look, I waited, and God showed me a ministry, and now it's ripening, and I've started a nonprofit, and I've named it Exit 53. Because of that story, I don't remember anything. <laughs> Just sow the seed. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is so significant for all of us in the room. Oh, I have no part to play. You don't even know the parts you are playing now. You don't know. Be present with people. Give. Press a little hospitality. Learn the barista's name. This is the gospel. There's another reason Moses didn't arrive. We're still on point one, by the way. <laughs> he didn't arrive because God is showing us nobody achieves perfection. He also didn't arrive because God is showing us that there are consequences for action. Moses is remarkable. He's overwhelmingly faithful. He's used by God. He's glorified to the point of standing with Jesus on a mountain a thousand years later after he's died. And his glorified state, he and Jesus and Elijah are standing there talking. God loves him. He's saved. He's blessed. He's anointed. He's used. He's exemplary in his faith. And he didn't enter the promised land. Why? Because he struck a rock in a moment of anger. That's why. David faced consequences for committing adultery. The brothers, the brothers of Joseph faced consequences for their jealousy and hatred. I want you to see this because it's very significant. God judges God's people. Are we saved by grace? Yes. Does God love us unconditionally, infinitely? Yes. Will God love us any more for obedience? No. <laughs> but hear this. Actions have consequences. That's the way the world works. That's why in Deuteronomy, uh, when there's these two mountains and antiphonally, curses and blessings are articulated. Moses stands between the two, uh, the, the, the two mounts and he says, look, this is what God is saying to me. I've said before you, not even right and wrong, this is what he says, I've said before you life and death, so choose life that you may live. Every day, every choice matters. I'm thinking that when Moses struck the rock, it's so easy for me to defend him in that moment. Do you understand? I mean, he's like this. Was, God said, speak to the rock, and he struck it instead. And God says, that's it. You will never enter the land. And I go, are you kidding me? Come on, man. Two years he's been with these people. They've been whining and complaining, and it's hot, and they're thirsty again, and they want to kill him. Of course he's angry. And Moses is like, I think, he says, you know what? Whatever. Boom. And that's it. That action. Done. Done. <laughs> One thing. This is the point of 2 Corinthians 10. Where we're reminded that because we're choosing all the time between life and death, there, there are no small days. No small consequences. One action can undo a great deal, friends. I've seen ministries destroyed, one action. Marriages melt down, one action. The Grand Canyon created between a child and parent because of one action. There are no small steps, no small things. It's telling for me to think 
that when I get up and speak, that this is the most important thing I do in the week. And then, you know, long about 1230, I'll go home, kind of check out, flip on the Seahawks, watch a little tennis on the side, and, you know, call in the afternoon as if it doesn't matter. No, no, everything matters. All my time, all my words, all my choices, all my expenses, all my spending, all my thoughts, all my, all my media digestion, there are no small steps. That's not said to make you anxious. It's said to invite you to live in communion with Jesus to enough of a degree that you have a sense of where God wants you to be at any given moment. That's why it's said. That's why God said it here. No small steps. So Moses didn't arrive. Look, 1 Peter 4, when judgment begins, it begins at the house of God. God judges God's people. Saved? Yes. Loved? Yes. People of faith? Yes. And, and consequences. Be, so, so that Paul will say then, what? Be careful how you walk. Be careful how you walk. That's a good word. When you're, when you're hiking, there, there are paths where, that are uh, smooth and there are paths that are rocky. And recently I've discovered, this is, this is at least me, that the safest path is the most difficult path. Because when I'm, when I'm on a difficult path, I'm paying total attention. And when I'm not on a difficult path, we had one moment, we were backpacking the PCT, we had one moment where uh, one of us, I won't say who, uh, stepped, literally stepped off the trail and fell over and uh, began kind of, you could roll down the hill. But it was smooth. It was, e it was the easy part. This is, I mean, the hard part, we're paying attention, we're praying, and then it's Tuesday. And, and there's a commute, and we're like, whatever, it's my time. There are no small days, friends. And that works positively and negatively. Here's the second thing. Moses died strong and remembered. Verses 7 and 8. It says his eyes were strong and he still had vigor. People debate precisely what this means, but they, the very basic principle here, Isaiah 40, 31, those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. In other words, there's a promise in Isaiah 40 that says this. Look, whatever it is that God has called me to do, I will be given the strength and resources to do that. I can fulfill my calling. I'm not given more resources than God's will, but I am given enough to do what I'm called to do. So uh, if I'm given all the resources of Christ to do the will of Christ, then it kind of matters that I make sure that I'm doing the will of Christ and not my own thing. And in a, in a consumer society where many of us are um, racked with the fear of missing out, it's eminently easy actually to overcommit. And we have more, then we have more obligations, we have resources. Don't blame God. Moses did what he was asked to do, nothing more. And within the scripture, there are people over and over again who you see who are still enthusiastic to the very end, to the very end. And those are the people who are intent on hearing from God and doing what God has asked them to do, but committing to that and letting other things go. Letting other things go. And that's the hard part for us, letting other things go. The previous CEO at this conference center, Mount Hermon, uh, Roger Williams, he recently died of cancer. But he was, he was still involved 
to the very end. Still serving, still leading Bible studies, still caring for his staff. He died strong. Moses died not only strong, but remembered. He was a leader. It says when he died, the people mourned for many days. So he, as a leader, Moses was seen to move people from here to there. And over and over again, the people resisted his movement. They complained. They judged him. They attached, attached bad motives to his actions and his decisions. And yet through all of that, what I love about Moses is he got discouraged, but he pressed on. He was angry with the people, but he interceded for the people. He was, I mean, he was actually a great leader. So there's one point, we, I think we looked at it in Exodus uh, 31, 32, where Moses is up receiving the Ten Commandments. People are down below. They're making an idol. This is, and then they're going to go back to Egypt, right? You know the story? And then remember what God says to Moses. God says, Moses, look, just stand back and I'll kill everyone. And we'll start over. And if I were Moses, I, I, I remember reading this a few times and going, if I were Moses, I'd been like this. How far back do you want me to stand? <laughs> Have at it. I've had it with these people. They hate me. You ever felt that way about coworkers, supervisors, family members? Have at it, God. No, here's what, uh, what I love about Moses. Like he has the opportunity to start with a clean slate, like a new team, and Moses is like this. No, God, these are your people. And listen, because they're your people, they're my people. Am I frustrated? Absolutely. And yet, the frustration is, is not going to trump my commitment to helping my people be the people of God that they are called to be. He's a servant leader. And so he asked God to see God's glory, and he asked God to if I can say it this way, to fill his cup so that Moses will have the resources to lead people in a, what is really for him a primarily thankless job. Moses embodies servant leadership and our world desperately needs such today, not only within churches, but within our corporate communities, desperately. And in fact, uh, our world, our corporate worlds all around us increasingly are grasping the notion of servant leadership, at least giving lip service to it, if not trying to practice it in some settings. Jim Collins, in his book, Good to Great, speaks of level five leaders, and he says that these are the leaders who have this crazy blend of profound humility and, and kind of relentless strong will. We will get it done, but we'll get it done with humility. We're not going to drive it through. We're going to ramrod it through. That's Moses if it's anyone. Max Dupree, in his famous book, The Art of Leadership, said that good leaders create an environment of covenantal relationships so that it's about building trust so that you have now the freedom to take risk and fail and know there'll be forgiveness. That's Moses. And this kind of leadership requires deep confidence on the part of the leader. And if you're in this room and you're a parent, you're a leader. <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a neighbor, you can be a leader. If you're a friend, you can be a leader. If you're a mentor, you can be a leader. And what you need then is not to live in such a needy state that you're constantly looking for the affirmation of those that you're leading, but rather you out of fullness are serving. How can I be filled? In Christ, you're full. Colossians chapter two, verse 10. You are complete in Christ. You have everything you need to be a person of hope even when no one appreciates it. That's good news. So when Jesus says in John 13, hey, I'm washing your feet, so that you will understand what it means to lead, we take up that mantle because like Jesus, we have the opportunity to serve out of a full cup. 
And then finally, here's the thing with Moses. He died pointing everyone to Christ. Everything that Moses did, though he didn't know it, pointed to Christ. The Passover pointed to Christ when they were delivered from slavery through putting blood on the door because the blood of bulls and goats pointed to Christ. We know that from Hebrews chapter 9. The manna that was the bread provided for them in the wilderness was Christ, John chapter 6. The tabernacle, Exodus 24 through 30, it's a picture of Christ. The rest offered in Hebrews chapter 4 embodied in the land in the Old Testament, the rest is the rest of Christ. So everything about Moses' ministry and the journey, what the whole journey was pointing people to Christ and he didn't even know it. And why didn't he know it? Because as we've already seen, the revelation of God is what? Expanding and evolving. So it was pointing to Christ. He didn't know, but we know it. And that's why if you call Bethany Community Church home, I want you to know this without apology. We are Christocentric. And I, my hope and prayer is that for everyone in the room, Christ would become our magnificent obsession <laughs> because we're called to display the character of Christ. We're called to live by the strength of Christ. We're called to appropriate the forgiveness of Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit, loving and honoring God the Father, making knowing God a goal, but all because of Christ. I'm not alone. Paul said it this way, may I never boast of anything other than Christ. And it was he who also said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we, we have one message, Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, look, when I was with you, I determined to know nothing among you other than Christ. And the reason this matters is because Christ is not just the way to heaven. Christ is the way in every situation. <laughs> when you're at a game today and your seatmates behind you are insane, Christ is the way. When, when you've been betrayed, Christ is the way. When you've hit a ceiling at work unjustly, Christ is the way. <laughs> when you're lonely, Christ is the way. When you have failed catastrophically with your sexuality, Christ is the way. After 9-11, we were united as a nation in our grief, but immediately divided regarding how to move forward. Immediately. And the reason is because we look, there, there are many solutions in life for many problems, but crisis always seems to be at the bottom of the list somehow. So post 9-11, there's a temptation to nationalism, a temptation to vengeance, or protectionism, or isolationism, or, or materialism. All is a path forward to peace. <laughs> really? Here's Ephesians 2. He, Christ, is our peace. Christ is our peace. And he is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9. And in him, all things hold together. And the day is coming when the entire universe will be saturated with nothing less than Christ who is peace. And when that day comes, there will be perfect justice and perfect reconciliation and perfect forgiveness. And it comes from nowhere other than Christ. And if that's true, then may Christ be seen in you and in us because he's our hope. And there is no other hope. No other hope. Boy, we don't know what this year holds, do we? After November 8th or 7th or whatever it is. And economically. And with respect to an immigration crisis that is profoundly affecting Europe and soon will affect us. We don't know. We don't know. We don't need to know. <laughs> because we know Christ.
And as we are deeply rooted and grounded in Christ, Christ will enable us to live as people of light in the darkest moment, so we need not fear. This is our hope. This is why we gather, to remind one another of these things. May we live into it as Moses did and be remembered as he was. Would you pray with me? And while everybody's heads are bowed, I'm going to ask this this morning. I think Christ is our peace, but many of us in the room are not enjoying that peace in the moment right now. There are broken relationships in this room. Work relationships shattered. Interior peace. We're filled with anxiety instead of peace. Family relationships needing reconciling. If you're in need of peace this morning, would you just raise your hand? Because God has spoken and you need peace. I want to be praying for you. If you need peace. And all of us are called to play a part in God's story. And some of us are sitting on the sidelines because of shame or complacency. We've shrunk our story down to personal peace and prosperity. If, if God has spoken to you this morning and you need to pick up the baton and carry it, be, be part of God's story, and you want to take a next step, would you raise your hand? Yeah, amen, amen. Would you pray with me? Father, speak to us now as we respond. Our prayer is that we would be carrying the baton faithfully. This is our moment. You've given us the gift of breath. Don't let us squatter it on triviality, Father. May we embody your peace and hope in a world desperate for what you have to offer. We pray in the name of Christ who is our hope. Amen.